At some point before reaching the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus stops to pray. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. In verses 1 to 5, he prays regarding himself, regarding his glory, regarding the Father's glory. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for all who would ever believe in him. Look with me again at verses 1 to 5. John 17, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here, Jesus indicates very clearly that he knows his hour has come. Jesus knows that the time has come for him to offer up his life as the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus prays that he would be glorified so that he could then further glorify the Father. Jesus prays confidently knowing that he will be glorified, that he will glorify the Father, that he will accomplish the life-giving mission that the Father has sent him on, that mission to give eternal life to all that the Father has given to him. And then, as I'm sure you noticed in verse 3, Jesus defines and explains exactly what he means by eternal life. Eternal life is not just living forever. Eternal life is not existing forever. In some way, we will all exist forever. Eternal life is knowing and loving God. Eternal life is life lived forever in a loving relationship, in fellowship with God, in his joy-filled presence. Now, this morning, we will turn our attention to verses 6 to 19. And there are primarily four things that Jesus prays about regarding his disciples. Please note this on your outline. Jesus prays regarding their unity, their protection, their sanctification, and their future mission, their future mission. Now, for our purposes this morning, we are not going to cover one of those topics. We're purposefully going to hold off on saying anything about the topic of unity because Jesus will come back again to this topic later in verses 20 to 26, which we will be covering next week when Jesus prays for all believers of all time. But for this morning, we want to zero in on what Jesus has to say regarding protection, sanctification, and future mission, and then buckle up. Because next week, not only will we cover the topic of unity, but we will also see what Jesus says regarding his desires for glory for his people. We will unpack that and explore as Jesus prays for all believers of all time for our future glorification and for a right recognition of the Father's love for us. It is absolutely amazing. The fact is, and I know I shouldn't be preaching next week's message now, but the fact is you are more loved than you know. 
In Christ, you are more loved than you know. If you are a child of God, the Father loves you just like He loves His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a mind-blowing reality that we will unpack and look at more next week. So we have already read verses 1 to 5. Please join me again as we begin now reading in verse 6. Verse 6, John 17. Jesus continues to pray. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we we thank you and we praise you for the ways in which you love us, for the ways in which you lead us, you protect us, you sanctify us, you allow us to share in your good work. And Father, just as Jesus prays here for our sanctification, so we pray together this morning for our sanctification. Make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This morning, as we study, as we read, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. I am among all men most richly blessed. Have you ever had the experience of not knowing what to pray for? Have you had the experience of struggling to know what you should say to God as you speak to him about a particular problem or situation or person in your life? I think that every believer from from time to time experiences this where we ultimately pray to God, Lord, I want your will to be done. I want you to be glorified. I want your people to be blessed. But in this situation regarding this person or this problem, I don't know exactly what to ask for. So, Father, do whatever is right. Do whatever is best according to your wisdom. And brothers and sisters, it is a great comfort to know that God will do what is right. God will do what is best. God will work things together for his glory and for the good of his people. And it should also be a great comfort to us to know that when we pray for the wrong thing, when we pray for something silly or or foolish or stupid, something that will ultimately harm us, God will respond with love and with wisdom and he will tell us, no. I mean, just, just imagine for a moment the catastrophe your life would be if God had answered an immediate yes to every prayer, to every request that you had ever brought to him. Your life would be a mess. My life would be a mess. Thankfully, God always answers according to wisdom, according to his sovereignty. To be sure, when it comes to our experience of prayer We must confess that we often do not know exactly what to pray for. And yet, there was one man who always knew what to pray for. And to this day, he still knows exactly what to pray for. While we may, from time to time, pray for silly or foolish things, not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. He always prayed according to the will of the Father. He always prayed for the right thing, for the good thing, for what was best in every situation. And so we have much to learn as we see and get to listen in on Jesus' prayer, His heart for His disciples in verses 6 to 19. The disciples were indeed true believers. They had accepted, they had embraced Jesus' words. Jesus makes this clear in verses 6 to 8, which we looked at last week, uh, knowing that they are indeed genuine believers, how will Jesus now pray for them? What kinds of things are on his heart and mind as he loves his disciples? Look again at verse 12. Verse 12. Jesus prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them 
And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Please note this on your outline. A, confidently trust Jesus to be the protector, guardian, and keeper of your soul. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your love and worship and devotion. Jesus says so clearly, I kept them, I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Why is it that the disciples continued to follow Christ? Why did they continue to trust in Him and and to believe in Him? Why is it that none of them other than Judas had fallen away? Why, Why was this? Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He had kept them. He had guarded them. And by the way, that was a full time job. Do you do you remember the disciples? Do you remember what kinds of men they were? James and John, the the sons of thunder, by all appearances, they were loud, harsh, arrogant, self-serving men. Simon Peter, he was good at running his mouth. He was good at making promises that he could not keep. He was an impulsive leader and not humble. Thomas was a pessimist. He is famous for his initial refusal to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, Philip appeared to be a realist who lacked the foresight to see the creative power and the strength of Jesus. He could never seem to see beyond the physical limitations that were that were that were staring them in the face. He failed to see what Christ was about to do. Matthew had been a traitorous tax collector, a Jew working for the Romans, cheating his own People working for the oppressors. Simon was a zealot who hated the Romans, who would have gladly put a knife in Matthew's back under different circumstances. So why did this group manage to continue on? How could this group continue to move together as one following Christ? Because Christ had guarded them. He had kept them. He had preserved them. Please note this on your outline. The word that Jesus uses here, kept, is the Greek word tereo. It means to keep, to guard, to observe. It is used elsewhere by John to speak of reserving or separating something out for a special purpose. It is used to describe giving close, special attention to something or someone. Jesus had kept These men. He had guarded these men. He had watched closely over each one of them so that they would not be lost. They would not fall away. Whether these men knew it or not, they owed everything to Christ. They owed everything to Christ. But not only that, note this on your outline as well. The word translated as guarded is the Greek word philoso. And it it is like tereo. It means to guard, to keep, to observe. But it seems to be a stronger, more intense word. It speaks of aggressively and tenaciously watching over someone or something. This word is often used to describe a soldier or a prison guard who is closely guarding his prisoner, who is closely watching over his prisoner. In this way, Jesus is actively, he is aggressively guarding and protecting and watching over these men that he loves. This should remind us 
of something glorious, something wonderful that Jesus said all the way back in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said these words, and we hear echoes of it here. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus loses nothing. Jesus loses no one. He has kept, he has guarded all his men. And one day on the last day, He will resurrect and raise up every child of God and not one will be missing. We see throughout scripture that the father keeps, the son keeps, the spirit keeps those who belong to them. Now, based on what Jesus says next, it would seem as though Jesus anticipated possibly two objections to his keeping work. To his saving work. Sure thing, Jesus. You kept these 11 men. What about Judas? What about Judas? Wasn't he the one who got away? Isn't he the fish who got away? Doesn't seem like you kept him so well. What about Judas? And not only that, Jesus... Aren't you leaving? Aren't you soon to depart earth? Aren't you talking about ascending back into heaven? What's going to happen to these men when you ascend back into heaven? Will you still keep them then? Will you protect them then? Let's talk about these two objections. Objection number one, what about Judas? Did he get away? Did Jesus lose him? It's a good question. Uh, Does what happened with Judas mean that it's possible for a child of God to be lost? To be ultimately condemned and experience eternal death. I don't think so. And here's what. Here's why. Jesus himself brings up Judas for the express purpose of emphasizing that he has never lost any of his children. The existence of Judas and his betrayal does not destroy Jesus's argument. It seems to prove his very point. Now, in verse 12, Jesus has a name for Judas, a title for Judas, a description for Judas. And it's this, verse 12, the son of destruction, the son of destruction. Judas was not a follower of Christ. That's not how Jesus describes Judas. He was, quote, a son of destruction, meaning that Judas throughout his time with Jesus refused to trust Christ, refused to repent and believe in him. Judas Hardened his heart to the light that was right before him. He is not the one that got away. He never belonged to Christ. And this is why Jesus calls him the son of destruction. And not only that, but Judas's betrayal was predicted. It was prophesied. It was spoken of throughout the scriptures. Jesus makes this abundantly clear when he says in verse 12, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus believed that Judas's betrayal fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now we hear that and the first question that pops into our mind is, 
what Old Testament prophecy? What, what verse are you thinking of, Jesus, when you make this statement? Well, remember back in John chapter 13, when Jesus was spending that last meal, that last time together with his disciples, Jesus spoke of this and even quoted some Old Testament prophecy to refer to Judas. In John thirteen eighteen, Jesus said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Here, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. And then later, in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, we see other Old Testament prophecy, other Old Testament verses connected to Judas, to his life, to his betrayal. Verses like Psalm 69, 25, verses like Psalm 109, verse 8, are said to be fulfilled in and through Judas's betrayal of Christ. So the point is, Jesus did not lose Judas. Judas lived his life. He rejected Christ. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, which is why Jesus was not in the slightest bit surprised by Judas's betrayal. Objection number two. But what about verse 13? Could Jesus's disciples be lost when he ascends back into heaven, when he leaves earth? I think the answer is a simple no uh, for three reasons. Reason number one, noted on your outline in verse 11, Jesus asks the father to keep to protect, to guard his followers, his his children. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He makes this request abundantly clear to the Father when he prays in verse 11, Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Now, do you think that the Father will grant this request? Will the Father answer in the affirmative to his righteous Holy Son who always asks, For what is according to his will. Of course, Jesus is not making a ridiculous request or a foolish request that is outside of the Father's will. Jesus prays according to the will of the Father. And the Father will do this. He will keep. He will guard. He will protect these men. Reason number two noted on your outline. It's true that Jesus ascended into heaven, but he never stopped praying for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, please hear this. Jesus has never stopped praying for us. Yes, he prayed for us in John 17. He ascended into heaven where he continues to pray for us, his children. The Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, where Paul asks the question, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus continues to care for, to pray for, to watch over us, his children. Listen, we are not, we are not in a disadvantaged position because Jesus has left uh, earth and ascended back into heaven. We are actually benefited by Jesus's ascension into heaven because in heaven, Jesus would then send the Holy Spirit to live in, to dwell in, to seal, to protect all of his children. This is reason number three. Please note this on your outline. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit is given as a guarantee of our salvation. Scripture makes this abundantly clear. Jesus leaving earth and ascending into heaven does not diminish the security of our salvation. It heightens the security of our salvation. It guarantees our salvation in a profound and powerful way as Jesus would send His Holy Spirit to live in and seal His children. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1 verse Verse 13, it says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit Himself seals us, guarantees our eternal inheritance in Christ. God has given the Spirit as a pledge, as a promise that He will fulfill all His promises, that He will bring to completion our salvation. So Jesus leaving earth does not diminish our security It heightens it. It heightens the promise and the expectation of our salvation. Jesus will not fail. He will finish what he has started. Later, many years later, the Apostle Peter would write a letter bearing his name, 1 Peter. And in the opening verses of that letter, Peter would would rejoice over the power, the, the, the keeping ability of, of God. When he would write these glorious words in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, where did Peter get this idea? Where did Peter get this idea that, 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 that the Father and Christ would be keeping and guarding and protecting the children of God? He learned it from Christ Himself, who here in John 17 prayed with thanksgiving and joy over His saving, keeping, protecting work. So yes, confidently trust Jesus to be the protector Guardian and keeper of your soul. B, on your outline, not only that, we should joyfully trust the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to sanctify us, to sanctify you. Listen, Jesus knows that all His children need to grow. Jesus knows that we are very much so a work in progress. That, that is what we are. If you want to hang a sign on us, that's it. We are a work in progress. We have not yet attained to perfection, to perfect, full Christ-likeness. We have not yet arrived. We are all a work in progress. We all need to abide in Christ. We all need Christ's joy in us. We all need the Holy Spirit living in us, working in us and through us. We need the Word of God to sanctify us. That is to chip off 
and to cut away the nasty, sharp edges of our lives until we more fully and closely resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at how Jesus prays for this. We'll start in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not anti-joy. Okay, despite what you may have been told, Jesus is not anti-joy. Jesus is For your joy. Jesus is pro-joy. Jesus prays that we might have and experience His joy in our lives. You say, what joy is that? I'm glad you asked. It's the joy of knowing God. It's the joy of being in a relationship with Him. It's the joy of living out our purpose, which is to know God, to glorify Him. It is the joy of being in fellowship with one another, brought into the body of Christ as we love and serve and minister to one another. It is the love and joy of being with brothers and sisters, that we may push one another on, that we may spur one another on until that day when we see Christ in glory. Jesus desires his joy to be in you. Jesus desires his joy to be made manifest in us. But Jesus is a realist. Jesus knows exactly what we're up against. Jesus knows the problems, the obstacles we will face. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, brothers and sisters, the fact is we are here. Okay, for this time being, we are here on planet Earth. This is not heaven yet. Okay, this is not glory yet. We are here on earth. Jesus intends clearly to leave us here for the time being. He does not pray that we get removed from the world, but that we stay here in this environment where the world and the devil are opposed to us. So in light of that, how are we going to make it? How are we going to accomplish the work of Christ? How are we going to have his joy in us? What's the answer? Verse. 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Listen, Jesus prays for a holy people. Jesus prays for a sanctified people, a people who will reflect him and represent him, his life, his mission, his joy. Jesus prays that God would sanctify us, set us apart so that we would glorify him and accomplish his mission, his purpose in our lives. And so as we consider this amazing prayer, this request in verse 17, there are three things we want to consider. Number one, the request itself. Number two, the reason for the request. And then number three, the basis for the request. Number one, the request itself. As we consider the request, we are confronted by a very obvious question. What does Jesus mean by sanctify? What does Jesus mean by this request? He prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But what does that mean? What does Jesus mean by sanctify? Please note this on your outline. To be sanctified is to be set apart. 
to be set apart, to be dedicated unto God in a special way for a special purpose. And here, in this context, that special purpose is Christ-likeness. Jesus prays that we would be set apart. All believers are truly and in a very definite sense set apart unto God. That is definite sanctification. We are sanctified. That is true. We are set apart to God. It is also true that we are in the process of progressive sanctification whereby we continually and gradually and step by step become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are set apart. We are sanctified. We are holy. Several years ago, Anna and I bought this plate. You didn't see this up here. I hid this up here before the service started. This is a special plate. This is our family birthday plate. This is a holy plate. I know this is this is a joy just to look at. Amen. Uh, this is our special birthday plate. Our children get to eat off of this plate. But once a year. On their birthday, they do not eat their three or four afternoon snacks on this plate. They do not take this plate. That was supposed to be funny. Like kids these days and their snacks. Am I right? It's like every two seconds. I'm hungry. You can't be hungry. You just ate. You know, Um, anyway, that's that's not in your notes. Um, Our kids, they don't they don't take this plate out to play in the mud pit. They don't take this plate out to play in the in the in the sandbox that we have. This is a holy plate, a sanctified plate set apart for a special and unique purpose. In fact, when we are not using this plate, it is put away up high in a cupboard uh, where little fingers cannot get to it. It is a special plate set apart for a unique uh, purpose and function in a similar way. Brothers and sisters, we are set apart unto God. We are sanctified. We are His. We belong to Him for His glory and for His purposes that we may continue His mission and be made in the likeness of Christ. And listen, the fact that God wants and desires a holy people should not be a surprise to us. We see this throughout Scripture. Leviticus 19.2, God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. The writer of Hebrews has our sanctification in mind when he writes in Hebrews 12.10 that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Jesus prays that we would be set apart dedicated for a special purpose, that we would progress in Christ's likeness, continuing his mission and his work. But this raises another very obvious question. How is this to be achieved? What is the instrument used to accomplish sanctification? Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, or it could be translated, sanctify them by means of the truth. And then to further clarify, so that we know exactly what Jesus is talking about, he adds the words, the phrase, your word is truth. How are we to be set apart unto God? How are we going to progress in Christ's likeness through the instrumentality of the word of God? Listen, brothers and sisters. Legalism, 
human work, willpower, trying harder. Listen, these things can restrain the flesh for a time. They can yield some kind of limited and superficial results, but they cannot sanctify us in any meaningful way. They cannot ultimately make us like Christ. Wisdom, education, intelligence, sheer genius. Yes, these can improve our our mental capacity, our reasoning skills, but they cannot transform our hearts and minds. They cannot make us love God and His righteousness, passion, Excitement, raw emotion can produce temporary feelings of of interest and devotion and affection, but they cannot change us from the inside out so that we'll actually follow Christ, so that we'll actually honor Him when difficulty comes and tragedy strikes. What we need is the Spirit of God using the Word of God to transform us into the likeness of the Son of God. Please notice very carefully what Jesus says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says to the Father, your word is truth using a noun. He does not say your word is true using an adjective. Now, I realize that upon saying that, some of you are thinking nouns, adjectives, ain't nobody cares. And I I can sympathize with that. You may be thinking... What's the big deal? Isn't it correct to say that God's word is true? Of course it's correct to say that God's word is true. The problem is it doesn't say enough. It doesn't say enough. Jesus does not say your word is true as if compared then to some higher standard of truth by which the word of God is found to be either true or false. No, Jesus says your word is truth, meaning it is the standard by which everything else is compared and thus found to be true or false. Listen to how David talked about God's word. Listen, listen, listen to how David described the effects of the word of God on the people of God. In Psalm 19, he says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all. Together, Listen, God's word revives the soul, makes one wise, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. It is the tool in the spirit's hands to sanctify us, to purify us. Why do we bother to go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible? Why do we bother to teach and explore and apply God's word in our Sunday school classes, in our ABF classes, in our small groups, in our elective classes, in our children's ministry, in our student ministry? Why do you people show up for all these things? Because you realize your need for sanctification, your need to grow in Christ's likeness, to behold Him more, to love Him more, to delight in Him more, that His joy may be full in us. We realize our need for sanctification, so we pray with Jesus, sanctify us according to the truth. Your word is truth, but it is at this point that I do not want you to make a critical error. Please do not misunderstand the focus of Jesus' words. We need to answer the question 
of this, of whom does Jesus make this request? Or to ask the question another way, to whom is Jesus praying? Now, please don't feel insulted. As, as I say that, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Did you just really ask that question, to whom is Jesus praying? We know the answer. Verse 11, Holy Father. Okay, Jesus is praying to the Father. Yes, we get that. We understand that. But before you feel insulted, please hear my point. Please note it on your outline. Verse 17 is a request to God the Father, not a command to his disciples. In other words, Jesus knows full well that his disciples cannot sanctify themselves. Jesus knows that his disciples cannot sanctify themselves. Sanctification is a work that God must do. We cannot sanctify ourselves. Jesus asks the Father... Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. While sanctification is brought about by the word of God, please hear me, the effectiveness of the word of God is dependent upon God himself. God is the agent of sanctification fully and finally. This book, this precious book is not God. And this precious book is not a magic book filled with magical spells and incantations and words that we can read and somehow force sanctification upon ourselves. No, brothers and sisters, we are entirely dependent upon God himself to sanctify us by His grace through His Word as we follow Him. Sanctification is a work that God must do. The Word of God is a sword, but the Spirit must wield that sword. The Word of God is a scalpel, but the Spirit of God is the surgeon to use that scalpel. The Word of God is a tool of sanctification, but the Spirit of God is the power behind that tool to effect transformation. This is why we must pray. We must pray before, during, and after our time spent in God's Word by ourselves. We cannot harness the power of the Word of God. God's Spirit must do it. He must use His sword. When sanctification is accomplished, be sure God has accomplished it. He has done it. Now at this point, you may be tempted to think... That is fantastic. I am off the hook. Sanctification is not my responsibility. I will let God worry about that. So I am just free to walk out of here doing as I please, however I please. Not so fast, my friend. While it is true that sanctification is not to be accomplished without the work and the power of the Spirit, we have every responsibility to do at least two things. We must firstly put ourselves continually in the way of truth by reading and studying and memorizing God's Word, praying that the Spirit will work. And then number two, we must pray. We must pray. It is our responsibility to pray and to ask God to accomplish His work in us. We are responsible for this. So that's the request itself. Now let's quickly look at number two on your outline, the reason for the request. Why does Jesus make this request? Why does Jesus pray for our sanctification? Verse 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, We are now sent out as ambassadors for Christ to represent Him. A uh, we, as a 
holy, sanctified people are now to be representatives of Christ, to continue His mission, His work of, of revealing the goodness and the grace of God. As we model His grace, as we speak His truth, we are to reflect and to show Christ. Jesus makes this request for sanctification because He will soon be leaving earth and ascending back into heaven and we must carry on this work. Our holiness, our sanctification is essential to our mission of representing Christ to the world. The greatest gift that you can give anyone is your own sanctification. The greatest gift you can give anyone is your own spiritual maturity. The greatest gift you can give your spouse, your children, your friends, your enemies, your neighbors, your co-workers, your pets, is your spiritual maturity, your Christ-likeness. That will be a blessing to everyone around you. Lastly, we need to consider three on your outline. The basis for this request. The basis for the request. In verse 19, Jesus explains the basis for this request. Jesus explains the reason why he can pray so boldly for our sanctification. Looking at verse 19, Jesus prays, And for their sake, I consecrate, or it could be translated, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Why is it that you and I have any hope of being sanctified, of being set apart unto God for his purposes? Answer, because Jesus first sanctified himself. Jesus set himself apart for the purpose of going to the cross so that we may be rescued, we may be brought out, we may be redeemed from the world and set apart unto God. Our sanctification ultimately has its roots in the work of Jesus for us. Jesus set himself apart to die in our place so that we might then be set apart unto God. We, just like these 11 men, we owe everything to Christ. We owe everything to him. Without him, we have no life, no future, no hope, no growth, no progress, no holiness, no sanctification. We have nothing except what our sin deserves. And that is a frightening prospect. But because Christ has sanctified himself, because Christ has set himself apart to go to the cross, to die for sinners like us, there is life, joy, hope, holiness, sanctification, glory, promised for anyone and everyone who will turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Not only does Jesus pray for our holiness, he purchases our holiness for us. He died that we might be set apart to God. Do you see now why your sanctification is such a precious thing? Do you understand why it is so vital and necessary that we not neglect God's word, but that we pray and we strive to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness? God wants a holy people. He died to make it so. Confidently trust Jesus to be the protector Guardian, keeper of your soul, joyfully trust the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to sanctify you, to make you like Jesus. And based upon these two profound realities, 
we can go out from here sent by Jesus, commissioned by Him to represent Him everywhere we go. Now, brothers and sisters, that is where we're going to stop for this morning. But I plead with you, please come back next week as we will wrap up and bring to conclusion the last precious part of this prayer where Jesus prays for our future glory, for our continuing unity, and for a right recognition of God's love for us. Please come back next week as we try to tie this all together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we see clearly from the words of Christ, we need you. We need your love, your grace, your protection, your spirit in our lives. Father, please continue to do that great work of sanctification. Please allow your spirit free reign to continue to work in us and through us to refine us, to correct us, to sharpen us into the image of Christ that he may be made known, that he may be praised that He may be worshipped by all that we come into contact with. We pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen.